defense attorney, Neil Rockheim. Hey, this is Neil Rockheim. Welcome to another episode of Killer Cross-Examination. I'm going to get right to another review, another analysis of the state of California versus Robert Durst. This is an incredible trial. I mean, this is an absolutely incredible case for so many reasons. Robert Durst has been the subject of a movie, All Good Things, the subject of episodes of Law and Order, the subject of books. He's been the subject of of documentaries. He's been the subject of an entertainment type documentary called The Jinx. He is uh, accused in the disappearance of. His, his first wife, Kathy Durst, uh, he was charged and tried for the, the murder and dismemberment of Morris Black, who was a man that he lived next door to in Galveston, Texas, and was acquitted of murder despite clear evidence of flight, clear evidence of dismemberment. He dismembered the body. He posted bond. He posted $250,000 on a a bond in a murder case and then took off and then shaved his head and uh, was, was using Morris Black's name and credit and was actually caught despite being a multi, multi millionaire and the heir to one of the the most substantial and well-known New York real estate families, the Durst family. Man, it's probably worth $100 million or more. And he was arrested fleeing prosecution in this murder case in Galveston, Texas. He he was arrested uh, by attempting to steal a, a $6 sandwich from a grocery store. It's unbelievable. Then after he's acquitted, um, he ends up uh, his uh, he becomes the subject of this movie, The Jinx, uh, which is a sort of an entertainment documentary. And The Jinx really focuses in a way on his life and also on the the murder of Susan Berman, who was Robert Durst's um, you know, close friend and spokesperson. I mean, this is incredible. This man has been his first wife disappeared. Roommate or neighbor murdered, dismembered, tried and acquitted. And then Susan Berman, his very dear friend and confidant, ends up being murdered. And he's now on trial for that murder. It's an unbelievable set of circumstances. And I want to talk, uh, I want to play some segments from this, from another portion of this trial, because uh, I'm going to get back a bit to the roots of our, of our podcast, of my podcast, of my, my love, which is killer cross-examination. And every single lawyer will tell you that it is imperative when you're cross-examining a witness to use leading questions 
and to control the examination. You have to be in the mindset of the witness. You have to think like the witness. You have to anticipate potential answers. And oftentimes that requires that you get control of the witness early on. Now you can't run to the up to the to the witness stand and grab the witness by the collar or by the strings or by his tie. You can't smack him around like that as you're trying to get control. And remember, all every you can't go slap him in the face and say, you know, cut it out. You need to, as you're examining this witness. You you need to gain control because you want the witness to answer your questions. You want to be examining him, drawing out from the witness are the things that establish that he's biased, interested, or that he's got a a bad motive. In other words, he's picked a side or he's motivated to hurt you or to help the other side, that he's incredible. In other words, that he's not believable or there's reason to disbelieve his testimony. Um, And or you want to draw out positive facts. This, and, and all the while you're doing that, remember that when you are, the jury's watching you, the jury's watching you as a lawyer, they are paying attention to whether you're losing your cool, whether you're getting too animated, whether you're being confusing, whether you're shuffling your papers, whether you're rustling with the items on the podium, whether it appears that you're organized, does it appear that you know the material that you, that, because this is a battle. I've said it before. This is a tug of war. Every examination is an examination that you cannot afford to lose. You don't have to win everyone, but you can't lose it. I've said this in in one of our our videos about killer cross-examination and my views about cross-examination, and that is that it's a tug of war. It's every question, every exchange is a sale. Either you're selling the jury that you're credible and you know the case and the witness is not believable, or the witness is selling the jury that you don't know what you're talking about, you're disorganized, unprepared, and that you are a bully. That is, that's the battle. I mean, I don't want it to be any more complicated than that. So, If you aren't prepared to take control early on, or you don't know what kind of witness this person is going to be on the witness stand, then you need to spend some time before you start questioning the witness and figure it out. That may mean you may have to take a few moments and try to figure out with the witness who's in control. You may have to throw out some like you would if you're going to paint a wall or you're going to actually try to... To, to waterproof a chair or waterproof a shoe, you're always instructed to, to try the paint on a section first, try the waterproofing on a section of the shoe or the chair first. That's, that's, that is, um, um, that isn't obvious or isn't a, a, an area out in the, in the open. Try it in an area where, um, in an inconspicuous area, so that if it discolors or it doesn't work, you have an opportunity to, to do it in a way to fix it. So it doesn't ruin the chair. This is the same for cross-examination. You can't start the cross-examination and then lose control, lose the battle, lose the tug of war with the witness and, and then attempt to gain it back. That's too late. You need to take control early. And the way you take control is you ask, and I'm telling you this, 
you ask questions. You ask leading questions that, and you ask them in small, little, bitty pieces. Pieces that the witness has to agree with or disagree with, but can't attempt to explain. Now, Dick DeGaron is one of the all-time great lawyers. The man is a legend in Texas. He's a legend in the legal community. He obtained, he's obtained acquittal upon acquittal, acquittals galore. He's like an acquittal machine for um, having tried cases all over Texas and the country. And he's the lawyer that obtained the most improbable acquittal for Robert Durst during his first trial, where he killed, admittedly killed Morris Black and dismembered him and still obtained an acquittal. I want to take you through, and there's no question the man knows what he's doing, but this trial is so off the rails. It is so bizarre, so unusual, the judge so out of control or appears to have lost control. The prosecutor so... Uh, um, um, persnickety and overbearing that, well, something is, I'm watching and listening to these examinations and one examination in particular, and the witnesses arguing with DeGaron is battling him from the start, and DeGaron is, 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 is hardly using leading questions to gain control. I'm going to show you uh, several minutes of an examination between Dick DeGaron and the former CEO of the um, Albert Einstein School of Medicine in New York, where Kathy Durst attended school. And I want you to, we're going to watch it. I'm going to break some pieces down and I want to show how um, uh, Dick DeGaron is doing it and how, in my opinion, this could be done differently. Now, to set the stage, uh, one of the, the, the prosecution's theory of this case is that Robert Durst is responsible for the disappearance of his wife. That was the subject of the movie All Good Things. It's the prosecution's theory that, that Robert Durst killed and is responsible for killing his wife, Kathy Durst, who was a medical student at the time. And it's their theory that he killed her and then attempted to sort of cover his tracks in a way by calling or having somebody call or having a woman call the dean of the medical school to excuse her from school uh, or from, I should say, from a rotation or a, a clerkship, internship, working on a, a clinical internship, working with uh, patients in her chosen area. And that the theory is, I believe, their theory is that Susan Berman is the one that made the call and it wasn't Kathy Durst. And part of the prosecution's theory is that no medical student would call a the dean or any member of the administrative staff to excuse yourself or herself from the rotation, from the um, from the the clinical internship, and instead would call or would have called the um, the the her fellow students. And part of this trial is that 
And, and part of the prosecution's theory, I believe, is that because the, the, the Janine Pirro, who at the time was the Westchester um, County um, District Attorney, that she had reopened the, the case and the investigation into disappearance of Kathy Durst and was going to go talk to Rob or to Susan Berman, that their theory is that Robert Durst was concerned that Susan Berman was going was to blow the whistle on him, tell all, tell all he had said, tell all that he had revealed, tell all he had admitted to or confessed. And I believe including that she or she knew who had made the phone call to the dean of the medical school claiming to be Kathy Durst, but that it wasn't, in fact, Kathy Durst. And so much of this trial, at least part of it, has been focused on the prosecution calling these witnesses who claim that in the late 70s that they and their effort is to call these fellow students and members of the administration at the school to say that in their opinion, in their experience, in their opinion, from their view, Kathy Durst, a medical student interested in pursuing a career in medicine, would not have called the dean to excuse herself for the day, but would have instead called one of her fellow students. It's, of course, all speculation and really only warrants a few simple questions, leading questions about, look, I mean, people do things differently. And everybody does things differently and everybody's entitled to do to make a phone call to whomever they want. And he wasn't there for the phone call and you weren't there for the phone call and anything other about what a student would have done or a hypothetical or an assumption is all just speculation. I mean, the cross-examination could be as simple as that on that point, but the prosecution got in the weeds on it. And the defense is going to get in the weeds on it, trying to undo or to prove that Kathy Durst could have or did and could have very reasonably or possibly or probably called the, the, the dean. That's their, their, this is their effort. This is their attempt. It is, I mean, you're going to see that in this trial, if you watch it, they spend um, scores of minutes each side going over this point. And one of the things that's important when you're trying a case is to not lose perspective on what's important. This is all speculation. Kathy Durst isn't here to say whether she called. Susan Berman isn't here to say that she made the call or she knows who, who did. And all these witnesses coming to court and testifying that in that time, it, in their opinion, they're pretty sure or certain that she wouldn't have called the dean, but would have instead called one of her fellow students. It's all speculation. It's as simple as that. I mean, from my view, you draw it from the witness that you don't know who, who called. You don't know. You weren't there. You weren't part of the phone call. Each person's entitled to call whomever they want, whether it's normal or abnormal, whether it makes sense to the witness or it doesn't. And it's just it's pure speculation to attempt to, to speculate or engage in conjecture about whether she did call or she didn't call. The rest of this is all just, I mean, it's in the weeds. And not just in the weeds, but it, 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 I can't imagine it. I would for a moment love to be a fly on the wall and watch the jurors. I got to imagine there's just 
There's just jurors galore rolling their eyes and nodding their head like this, probably trying to stay awake and rolling their eyes and taking their fingernail and poking in their arm to try to stay awake because some of this is just mindless pablum. It's just unnecessary. But I'm going to show you what it looks like to lose control with a combative witness, no matter how good of a lawyer you are, lawyer you are, early on in a cross-examination. So I'm going to play for you uh, Dick DeGuerin, legendary criminal defense lawyer representing uh, Robert Durst in his cross-examination of Dr. Stephen Safier, who was the CEO of Albert Einstein Medical Center. Let's get that clip up right now. So as you can see here, this is Dick DeGuerin. Now, I'm going to give you lawyers, I'm going to give all of you a a little tip, okay? Here's a a tip. This is my tip. Uh, You can take it or leave it. If you all want to, you do with the tip what you want. Um, So, you ready? Okay. When you get up to the podium, you ought to know what size podium you're going to get up to. You ought to know, as a lawyer, particularly before you start the trial, what kind of podium you're going to get up there. You ought to know whether you've got room on that podium for a legal pad. Do you have room for, let's see, have you got room for, you got room for this legal pad? You got room for this phone? You got room for another legal pad? Do you have room for some more files? Or do you have another table that you can use to, if you need that many notes and you got that much, I'll just say it, come out and say it. I'm a huge fan of Dick DeGarren, but you got this much disorganization going on up there and during your, your cross, I'm not sure why you don't have this all together, like in a notebook or in a three ring binder or or why this is why you have multiple legal pads. How come this wasn't like organized? I mean, this is just too much material. There's too many tangible things in front of you to have in front of you as the uh, as you're about to begin an examination. So know the podium, know the logistics of the courtroom. So, all right, you'll see why I mentioned that here in a second. Am I pronouncing it correctly, Safier? No, correct. Uh, I'm Dick DeGuerin, and I represent Bob Durst. I'm, I'm sorry? I'm Dick DeGuerin, okay. my name, and I represent Mr. Durst along with my colleagues. Um, now, the witness is already argumentative. He's already trying to sort of cut off the lawyer. He's already trying to step in, say, I know, I know. So the folks see. I'm Dick DeGuerin. I represent Bob Durst, which is designed to sort of let the jury know that you stand with Dick DeGuerin or you stand with Robert Durst and that you're on his side. The witness is sort of already taking that away. So you have to decide right then and there, what is the, what, how are you going to, and are you going to attempt to control this witness? Or are you going to try to take the position that you're just going to let the witness and help the witness sort of self-destruct in front of the jury? 
And I mean that. This witness is already giving, look at the way the witness is postured. Dick DeGaren's looking down at his notes here. See that? And the witness is staring at him like, with a, with, even through this mask, you can see a, a level of loathing. And you need to be watching that if you're the, the lawyer. You need to be paying attention if you're the lawyer. That witness is giving you the stink eye. And instead of looking down at your notes, as Effie Bailey often says, you got to be looking that witness in the eye and to, to be sizing him up. Let's see how Dick DeGaren handles the, that, that exchange and how he handles all this, this clutter of paper he's got up here on the podium. You said that someone about to miss a rotation would probably call the head of the rotation or another student. What I want to focus on was your use of the word, and I believe you emphasized it, probably. Now, why do that? If the word probably is really important, and if you're trying to use this as positive, constructive cross-examination because you believe that helps you, why ask it in a convoluted way? Why ask this question in a convoluted manner? Look, just come out as, a, as, a, as opposed to, to asking him, didn't you say that? Just tell him. You testified a few moments ago. You testified with, to the prosecutor. You testified on this subject. You were asked a question about this subject, and in your answer, you said that you would probably call so-and-so, right? We all know what probably means. You don't have to remind him that, that he was emphasizing it. or to, All you're doing is drawing the witness's attention to the fact that you, who are representing Robert Durst, this guy, look at this, look at the way he's looking, all you're doing by attempting to talk about that you're emphasizing and you emphasize that word is you're telling the witness that word was important to me and to the defense. You are raising a red flag to him to be disagreeable. Let's see if, what, what the witness does. That was your word, wasn't it? Well, I, was that your I don't word? know what the problem was. Was that your word, sir? Can you, so I'm not going to answer. So listen, uh, listen. The two of them are talking over each other. So clearly, DeGaren at this point doesn't have control of the witness, and the witness feels that he has the liberty and the right to argue back. So as a lawyer, what do you do about that? The last thing you really, sure, the judge is going to come in and rescue him, but it's not like a rescue. This judge is going to come in and really like rescue him. In fact, the way the judge sort of handles it is he sort of makes it seem like the question is really sort of, you know, like finicky, like, like, too picky. Listen to how the judge explains this to the witness. Listen to the question, the, the, very, the question that he <laughs> asked. Focus on that, that very specific question and answer only that question. You may repeat your question. Was that your word that you used? Probably. Why are you asking a non-leading question? See, it gives the witness a chance to, to argue, to explain. How about just asking him in a, with a leading question? You used the word probably, right? Or you used the word probably, or you said probably. 
But when you begin it with a verb, when you say wasn't the word that you used, you're giving him a chance to argue. That's a non-leading question. You are giving this man who's already demonstrated to you that he wants to fight, that you're giving him a chance now to fight. And at this point, you should begin sizing up whether you're going to continue to attempt to do a constructive cross to develop favorable evidence, or are, is the cross-examination going to do, are you going to do a more abbreviated cross-examination with an effort to be to point out that this man is biased? And at some point, a lawyer should call or should call this witness out on his bias. Listen. That they would have called somebody different than the person that was called? My question to you, in your answer to Mr. Lewin, did you use the qualifying word probably as to who they would call? Again, a non-leading question. This can be cleared up, can be made simpler. You can be taking control of the witness and forcing the witness into, into being ar more argumentative, into not answering your questions, but more importantly, gaining control so that you can control the examination. This is the tug of war that I talk about in killer cross-examination. When I talk about the importance of, of, of how to go about conducting your examinations, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that this is every exchange is a battle. Who's winning the battle? Who's losing the battle? And you can't lose. You can't afford, you can lose, but you can't afford to lose or to be the apparent loser in the exchange. And one of the great tools that we have to ensure that cross-examiners aren't run all around the courtroom, aren't run all over the court. Like, you know, like, uh, um, uh, who is it? Like Roger Federer. You know, may run his opponent all over the court with you know, balls to the left and then balls to the right and then a short ball and a long ball. And you're running the guy till he's ragged. Cross-examination is the tool that we lawyers have, that we defense lawyers have to not be run all over the place. There's no excuse for not using it. There's no probably about who was supposedly called. So um, and I think I, I, meant, I was clear about that. So this, <clears throat> what Mr. Garrett is doing is, is focusing very, very specifically on the word you used in your answer. So <clears throat> he's asked you a very specific question, and, and, and sure, you'd like to explain it, but I, I will give uh, Mr. Lewin a chance to have you expand on what it means. That's, that's one mode we can proceed in, and that's an acceptable mode. I'm going to enforce that. So. Um, He's asked you if you use the word probably. You may answer. Now, I mean, it was just the question wasn't the most artful question asked. It wasn't a leading question. And the judge, you can tell, is frustrated. But instead of just directing the witness to answer or someone writing to Garen a note saying, look, man, it's time to ask leading questions. And get rid of all the paper up here. I mean, ask him in leading questions. Lead the man. Instead of that, the judge does something different. The judge does a, I don't know. Not only does he kind of 
pick on the question by saying that it's it's hyper-focused on one word. Uh, but then he tells the witness, but more importantly, clues into the prosecutor, Mr. Lewin here, basically tells him like, well, you'll clear it up. You'll have a chance to explain it, Mr. Lewin, and I'm sure you will. That That to me is just that's not the job of the judge to tell the witness that, well, the prosecutor will help you clear this up. And Mr. Prosecutor, you'll, of course, have an opportunity. This witness is already demonstrating a loathing for the defense, and he doesn't want to cooperate. And you'll see that the, that didn't help. All that did was sort of that, that question, again, non-leading question, and the judge didn't really assist in a way. Maybe the judge would just say, answer the question, as opposed to trying to be so kind and so gentle with the, the argumentative witness. Probably that I use the word referred to who she would have probably called. Exactly. Speculation. Okay, that's it. That's all you need. The witness just said it himself. He volunteered it. That's it. That's the answer. All of this about who she did call and who she would have called and who she probably would have called. It's speculation. The witness just nailed it. He just said it. That's all you He's just making, people are just making assumptions about something from 30, 40 years ago. That's it. Wrap it up now. Tie a bow on it. You got what you want. Probably. It's speculation. Doesn't, the rest of it is, the rest of it is, it's, it's all just compounding on speculation. So let's see if DeGaren actually ties this. It ties this chapter, you know, brings this chapter to a close or ties the, the, the knot on this or whether we get into a real back and forth that just has everybody sort of twisting and turning and, um, and arguing. It really, just to give you kind of some foreshadowing, it's the latter. It's not the former. It was speculation. Yes. And he, and he, he- that's it. It was speculation, wasn't it? Yes. And he asked a leading question. See, he got an answer. He asked a leading question. It was speculation, wasn't it? And the witness nods and says yes, because that's how you conduct cross-examination. You lead. The qualifying word, probably. Now we go back. Now, as opposed to taking it, now we gild the lily. So the witness has now agreed that it's speculation. The jury's not dumb. They know that the word probably was is a speculative word. The witness just admitted it was speculation. But now Dick DeGaren wants to, he's got a chapter in a, or some notes or something. And he and all that paperwork up there, he wants to, to tie this even tighter. Instead of one knot, he wants to tie a triple, quadruple sailor knot with a you know four corner. I don't know. And instead, what he does is he gives the witness some clue that this was important. And you're going to see now that the witness and he go down. This is called gilding the lily. This is after you get your answer, you get the answer you want. And as opposed to being satisfied with the answer that helps your case, you want to make a finer point on it. And in doing so, you undermine and, and contradict and take attention away from the answer. Referred to who she would have probably called. Exactly. The speculation. It was speculation, yes. And he, and he used the qualifying word probably. 
didn't you? I, I agree. That means there's a chance you could have called somebody else, doesn't it? Well, somebody called somebody else. I don't ask I you that. that there's a chance did. that she. You had it, Dick. You had it. You, you, you got him to admit that it was speculation. You used two leading questions in a row. You got it to it was speculation. You, in, instead of just being satisfied that that's the answer you got, now you want to want to attempt to to make even a finer point on it. The jury probably has already gotten the point, but now the witnesses hurt you because rather than just actually ask a leading question, get the answer, and move on. You attempted to draw a finer point on it. Now the witness sees where you're going. And instead of saying yes, the word probably means that it's possible that she could have called somebody else. He then picks up on that and he instead says, well, somebody called somebody else, but I doubt it was her. In other words, he's now arguing with DeGaron and trying to implant into the cross-examination that in his opinion, it's doubtful that this witness called or that that Kathy Durst called the the uh, dean, and it's more likely that somebody else called, pretending to be her. Well, somebody else. If you say it's probable that she would have called somebody, then it's possible that she called somebody else, isn't it? I had never heard of it, and I have never. Then ask whether you heard of it. I'm asking about what you said. That question, Mr. It, it's not a question. What was her relationship with Dr. Jean Cook? Wait, that's it? I mean, you had it. You, you got the speculation. You emphasize the word probably. The jury knows what probably means. Probably means that could be or could not be. So there's room for other alternatives, and you got that. And then by gilding the lily, you actually undid it, and now you're going to ask a move on to another chapter? You're going to move on to another chapter, and the beginning of the chapter is going to be a non-leading question. Um, Cook. I don't know who you're referring to. You don't know who Dr. Jean Cook was? No, I don't, or I don't remember. Who is he? Let me see. Uh, number B, right? What's this? <laughs> You're going to have one if you don't have one. Oh, sorry. Thanks. See, you've got some prosecutor over here to the right way over here telling the judge is telling him you'll have something here on the screen. You got someone over here telling him it'll be over in the screen. And he gives like a, you can even noticeable smile, like a look of agreement of, a, of, of some kind of, uh, of camaraderie. There's, I mean, I could pick up on that in uh, the few seconds that it took for him to react, and you'll see, but he just got disdain for DeGaron. And someone ought to be able to, able to point this out somewhere during a cross-examination. But 
as you'll see, it's not going to be in these few moments. It'll take a moment for it. And by the way, the, the witness to me reminds me or looks like the teacher. I think he looks or what's that guy's name? Ben Stein, Ben Stone, whatever his name is. Uh, the teacher from Ferris Bueller. Bueller. Bueller, Bueller, he has that, that look to me, but I digress. If you want to the album, we have the court exhibit. Now imagine the jurors right here. They're all trying to get this exhibit up. The witness is sitting here. His mind is, of course, just thinking about what's going on. The jurors are sitting here taking time away from their lives. And the defense is, you know, trying to get the this this document projected onto this camera. It's not smooth. It's not smooth. It's not flowing. Um, it is halted and stodgy. It's halted and 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 I don't know. Stodgy is not not the right word. It's halted and um, it's disjointed. It's like. You know, like you're driving in a car and as if driving a really smooth car and one that's got the bouncing to it, it feels like that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. on the screen is the first page of Defendant's Exhibit B. And if we could uh, focus on the uh, top part, the letterhead and the date. Yes. Yeah. What's on the screen now, uh, a little bit more clearly, is a handwritten note that begins to Mrs. Kathleen, Ms. Kathleen A. Durst, dated 9 March 1981. And the letterhead is John L. Cook, MD, Associate Dean, Assistant, Assistant Dean for Students. Yeah, I remember his name. I can't picture him at the moment. So, and, and I, he also looks, this witness also looks to me and, and, and sounds like anybody who's watched the movie Fletch, there was a lawyer who was trying to, to serve, who represented Fletch, or I think represented Fletch's ex-wife or something in the movie. Anyway, he reminds me of that character. Uh, it's not particularly relevant, but I'm thinking of where his voice sounds like, but Dick DeGaren is now going through this document that the witness has never seen before. I do remember. I do. And uh, do you know what Kathy's relationship was with Dr. Cook? Definitely not. Okay. So another non-leading question. If the effort is to establish that Kathy had a they had a different, more personal relationship with um, the, Dean Cook. Why not put that to the witness? Why not actually establish with some backdrop, some background that some students have uh, developed 
close relationships with members of the faculty, right? Some students develop close relationships with members of the administration, right? Some students develop a friendship or a kinship with the, 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 the administration, right? And certainly the, it's important for administration and the administration is encouraged to, uh, to, to listen to and be available to students who are experiencing issues, personal, um, um, emotional, or what have you. And, me- and medical school and medical training can be difficult. And you want the administration to be there to, to, to talk to students who may be having difficulty. Uh, those are questions that, that 98% of the time are going to be answered in the yes, because everybody's going to want to make it seem like they're there, their administration, and they are going to be there for their students. And then you could, of course, put the question to this witness that isn't it true, or you, if you don't want to use that phrase, you could say that Dr. Cook had a, uh, a, a unique, special friendship or relationship with um, Kathy Durst. And when the prosecution objects and says speculation or beyond his personal knowledge, uh, or the witness says, I'm not aware of that, then you've additionally made your point. You've additionally made the point because you've now proven that he doesn't know anything about this that Kathy Durst relationship with Gene, with Gene Cook. But you set up, you've set up that it's not nothing untoward, nothing improper. In fact, it would be perfectly appropriate for Kathy Durst to have a special friendship with the with this dean. And now you've established that he didn't have that. This witness doesn't know anything about that. See how you can actually tell your story using cross-examination? And you can prove that this witness doesn't have any. Now, he's. if you do it the way I just suggested, he's completely testifying out of, uh, you know, out of, the, out of his um, strike zone. He's testifying outside of his, his heartland. He's testifying in a way that's not in his bailiwick. I mean, think about it. If you did it the way I'm suggesting, you'll have... He doesn't, if he, when he says, I, I don't know his, I don't know of their relationship, then you can follow up with, you've established that he doesn't know and doesn't have any information from which to say that she didn't have that relationship with this Dean. And then you can follow up with that. It's a a Dean has the ability to, to if a student seeks them out, to write a letter to a school, to write a letter to a teacher, to write a letter to a class instructor, that there's nothing improper about a dean who has developed a relationship uh, with a student uh, to, to write a letter on his or her behalf to other faculty and members of the school. And lo and behold, the reason why I say that is no matter what this witness says, if he if he disagrees with that, you have a letter. And if he agrees with that, you have the letter. You've boxed him in. That's how I would do it because the very next thing is going to be this witness is going to be shown this a letter that this dean purportedly wrote on behalf of Kathy Durst. And so you can set it up in which you actually set up that a special friendship, a unique friendship, a relationship between the dean and the, the student. Um, one where the dean took a special interest in the student, 
could result in the, the, the dean writing a letter to other faculty. And lo and behold, then you introduce the letter. You gave an interview with uh, a telephone interview, I believe. But rather than do that, rather than actually do that, uh, Dick DeGaron's going to start, again, with all due respect to him, he's going to start thumbing through his, his notes and papers. You can almost see in the reflection here against the glass, he's got a whole series of papers and you can hear the papers rustling. Let's see if he actually is able to zero in on something valuable here. With uh, Mr. Lewin and others, in December of uh, 2015, do you recall that interview? Why, why, why are you asking him that? Why are you asking whether he recalls an inter a specific interview on a specific day, just put the question to him. If you've got something in that interview that you think is valuable to you, just ask the question, including the fact. Well, you've told Mr. Lewin, you've told Mr. Lewin X, Y, Z, haven't you? And then if he disagrees with you, then you can go about going thumbing through your papers and trying to show him the interview. And if he says he doesn't remember, he looks foolish. But put the information to him. Let him deny it or let him say yes, or I don't recall that, or that's not something I would said. Set the man up. Do some setup here. I did? Yes. It was a telephone interview. And I interviewed him. I don't remember. I, I, you, you, do you remember talking to Now you're really in trouble, Dick, because as opposed to putting the facts to the witness and putting it to him and then having him deny it or refute it or agree with it or say he doesn't remember, now he's saying he doesn't, before you've introduced any of the valuable information that you have in this interview, the witness is just say he doesn't recall it. So now you got to try to to refresh his recollection, and if he doesn't, if his memory can't be refreshed, or he says he doesn't recall it, now you're really stuck because then you got to try to do past recollection recorded, or if he says, "Yeah, I recalled it, but that's not what I said, or that's not what I meant, or I was confused," you're just giving him opportunity after opportunity to just, um, I mean, to just. Hit. These are softballs, and this is cross-examination. If you, I mean, these are softballs. You're just giving this witness a chance to hurt you, and he's going to do it right here. Lewin and other members of the oh, prosecution team. Yes, this is Mr. Lewin right here. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about Cook. I am talking about Cook, but now my question is, do you remember doing an interview with Mr. Lewin in this are any of the jurors even remotely following this? Do you think any of them are getting anything out of this? Are the jurors getting any valuable information? Who do you think, what do they think about the players at this point? Maybe they think this doctor is being a, a, a bit of an asshole, or maybe their opinion is he's being argumentative or evasive. And that's okay. That's okay for the defense because you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be told, the jurors will be told at the end of the trial that they're allowed to consider in a credibility contest or in evaluating the credibility of witnesses, whether a prospective juror 
or, or excuse me, whether a prospective witness argued with the, the lawyers or was evasive, you're, he'll be, he's got that. No question that this lawyer is evasive, but Dick DeGarren isn't making it really clear because the questions are a bit confusing and the exchange isn't leading anywhere. This is, if I'm on the jury right now, I, I need a five-hour energy, a Red Bull, an espresso, uh, some Skittles. I need something to stay awake, and I need someone to tell me what the hell is going on here. Of 2015. I, I don't remember it, um, you know, particularly. I, I had talked to him. Did you know that you're... Uh... See, you're in trouble here. He says he doesn't remember it. Now what are you going to try to do? What Tagera's going to do is he was going to want to try to establish that there's a reliable transcript of the interview, except the problem is, is that he's trying to refresh recollection and he's, his witnesses said he doesn't recall this. Any question after this is problematic because the witness can just say, I've already told you I don't remember it. Well, uh, let me show you this. Okay, you can show it to me, but I don't remember the interview. You've given the witness the out. Because you didn't put the information in the interview that you wanted. You didn't put the prior inconsistent statement in that you wanted to put to him. You didn't put it out there. And then back it up. Review with Mr. Lewin was tape recorded without your knowledge? I don't even remember having that conversation. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that. Now, do you see what just happened there? The man said, I don't recall the interview. So then Dick DeGaren's next question is, well, do you, did you know that the interview was recorded? Then he adds in without your knowledge. There's a second fact that could have been objected to, but wasn't. But then the first question was, the interview that you don't remember taking part in or giving, did you know that was recorded? The guy's like, I've already told you, I don't remember it. This is going nowhere. Did you then tell Mr. Lewin she probably called whatever the equivalent of the dean of students was? Okay, the opportunity to do this sort of gentle impeachment where you ask the question and hope the witness, you say like, and you, and you ask it in a, in a non-leading way. You, you, you lost that opportunity. That's gone. Trying to ask this non-leading question and hoping to impeach the witness after that or to show that the witness doesn't know what he's talking about, you're, it's time to strike. If you have a prior inconsistent statement or you have a statement where he said probably or he mentioned the dean or the equivalent, then put it to him. Isn't it true that you've told Mr. Lewin or investigators working with Mr. Lewin who is the prosecutor, that she probably called the dean or the equivalent, right? Put it to him. Let him deny it or say he doesn't remember. Then, then if you want, you can show him the transcript of the interview and say, isn't it true you said that? The jury knows you're holding something that's, that's real, but this is just taking forever to get to the point. Did you tell Mr. Lewin that? I don't remember having that conversation with him, but, you know, she... May I show the witness uh, the transcript? Yeah. 
to refresh his recollection. Yes, to refresh his recollection. Read that to yourself, sir. No, that not out loud. There's no question, Tim. Okay, you ready? All right. Yes. Now, you see how, Mr. how DeGaren is starting that? He just showed him a transcript that assumedly contains the line that the witness doesn't remember. Instead of asking, he's about to begin this by asking a non-leading question. Again, I don't know how many times I have to stress this. He's going to ask a non-leading question. Did you? That gives the man the chance to argue. You're not telling the witness. You're not controlling the examination. You want to control the examination, show it to him, ask him to read it, take it back, walk back and say, you told him that. Now, the jury's going to sit there and watch this man have to then deny what he just, they know it's on paper. They know that DeGaren's not showing him something that's like uh, a menu from a restaurant. They know he's showing them a transcript of an interview in which this man said that. This is the time to strike right here with a leading question. Dick, please ask a leading question here. Yeah. Did you tell Mr. Lewin she probably called whatever the equivalent of the dean of students was? So what did, what did you say that to Mr. Lewin? Yeah. That the witness I'm not yelling. Did he be allowed to answer the question? Yes. So, <clears throat> What do you mean proceed politely? Just what do you mean? This is this is like a war. This is warfare. There's a man's there's a, a, a woman who's dead. The prosecution has been building this case forever. They've got a, a, a man on trial for his life. What do you proceed civilly? We're not in in a we're not in synagogue or in church. We need to proceed civilly. We're not. We're not at a at a Ms. Ms. Manners, you know, type. We're not at a at a at a at a I don't know a debutante ball or a um, you know some kind of like upper crust. You know this this is a battle, man. We're battling for a man's life. What do you mean proceed civilly? And then the, I don't want Mr. Objection. I don't want Mr. DeGaren to yell. Well, the reason why DeGaren is losing his cool is because he's not asking good questions here, in my opinion. And he's giving the witness an opportunity to actually to, to, to get out of it. And he knows it. What he should be doing is even if the witness is not going to answer the question the way that he should, ask the leading question. If the witness doesn't respond, ask it again. If he doesn't respond, Ask it to him again slowly. If he doesn't respond, then ask him. If you need to ask him, say, sir, that I'm going to ask you this one more time. 
You don't want to answer the question. Just say you don't want to answer it. And that's what we'll take away from this process. Then ask the question again, or say, if I ask you what your name is, you tell me, right? If I ask you who your wife is, you tell me, right? If I ask you what your job title is, you tell me, right? Yes. But I want you to, I want, I'm, we, uh, I want you to answer the questions I'm asking you with the same directness. Do you understand? Yes. But let's see what ends up happening here. My memory. No, you, not, the question before you, sir, well, is. I thought you asked the question. Wait for a moment. Let, let him ask. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. Yeah. ask it again. Did you tell Mr. Lewin she probably called whatever the equivalent of the dean of students was? Do you want me to answer that or do you want me to say yes or no? I want you to say yes or no. That's I, an I, don't, I don't remember. No, see. No, that to the jury makes it look like, as opposed to leading, makes it look like that the that you, you want the witness to say something untrue. Maybe the witness looks argumentative, but this is not a, a tug of war that the Garen is winning here. It's a simple question. You gave an interview. You gave an interview to a prosecutor. You gave an interview to a prosecutor and a bunch of investigators. Isn't it true that during the interview with the investigator and a bunch of investigators, the, the, Prosecutor and a bunch of investigators, you said she probably called the dean or the equivalent of the dean, right? Simple. Let him, let him argue. And if he argues, put it to him again. And if he argues, put it to him again slowly. And if he argues again, then break it down. So you understood the words that I was using, right? Yes, you understood all the words that I was using, right? Yes, you're a high, you're a doctor. You've gone through years of college and medical school, and you're a CEO of Albert Einstein Medical Center. You deal with language and people and documents all day. A patient asks, there's a million ways to do it. You know this, doctor, that when a patient asks you a question specifically, you give them a direct answer, don't you? Yes. I'm asking you to give me a direct answer here. Isn't it true? Or didn't you say? Or you said? Don't say didn't, didn't you say. Isn't it true? You said. You told. You described. You use, however you begin it, it needs to be leading. This was not a complicated chapter of cross-examination, but it was made complicated because the witness wants to argue and the lawyer is not taking control. So, I would say Who is Dean Lazar? Okay, please let the witness come can't watch anymore. Listen, this isn't that complicated. On direct examination, prosecutors who are eliciting information from witnesses ask witnesses to give narratives. They ask for what are supposed to be non-leading questions that don't suggest the answer. 
On cross-examination, you're supposed to be controlling the witness, putting facts of the witness that either make the witness agree to help your case, disagree to help your case, or disagree to prove that the witness is, is not credible or truthful. And one of the ways is to show that the witness is argumentative. But if that's the case, this battle is being not won. If this is what Dick DeGaren's goal is here, which I don't think it is, he's not winning this battle. In fact, it appears to me he's losing. And over a, a point that wasn't that important, number one, over a fact that wasn't that important, number two, but number three, a point that the witness has essentially already conceded the couple of times that DeGaren put to the witness leading questions. I'm going to keep following the Durst trial. I'm going to keep bringing you snippets and commenting on them and showing you what's good and bad and what I think is well done and what I think isn't well done so that you can see that even like real life masters of, of criminal defense and trial lawyers, um, uh, experienced prosecutors, and even seasoned veterans like Dick DeGaren sometimes just can't find their fastball on a particular day. So, I, again, I have no quarrel with what DeGaren has done over the course of his career. But here, in this particular case, he's in this particular witness. Now, I think it could have been done. At least I would have done it differently. And I think it would have been much more effective. This is Neil Rockine. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Killer Cross-Examination. Podcast can be found on killercrossexamination.com can be found on all platforms where uh, podcasts are available. Killer, killer. Killer, killer cross-examination. A podcast by your host, the nationally renowned criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim.